0: This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me. So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Brian a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a four-part series of messages Alistair Begg presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week 1991. Then, we'll close the week Friday with a message from Alistair titled, Revival Soul. Alistair Begg is the senior pastor of Cleveland's Parkside Church. He's an author, conference speaker, and host of the daily Truth for Life radio program. Now, here's Alistair Begg on Today in the Word radio. I would like to spend the time in these mornings, uh, up until Friday morning, in one small section of 1 Peter And if you bring your Bibles here in the morning, then I'd like to invite you to consider 1 Peter chapter 5 and the section which begins at verse 5. Let me tell you what we're going to endeavor to do in these mornings so that you can determine whether we've achieved our objective or not. This morning we're going to tackle the subject of humility, or rather we're going to be tackled by the subject of humility. Uh, Tomorrow morning— we'll deal with anxiety. On Thursday morning, we'll deal with adversity. And then on Friday morning, we'll deal with security. Our subject then this morning emerges from verses 5 and 6 of Peter's final chapter of his first letter. The fact that he's addressing humility at this point in the letter is no surprise to those who have read the previous four chapters. He's had a tremendous amount to say about the whole nature— and notion of submission he's urged that people should submit to authority that those who are in employment should submit to their bosses that wives should submit to their husbands and as he begins the fifth chapter that elders should submit to god and should display humility in the way in which they lead those who are under their care Now, we might be forgiven for assuming that this was a fairly palatable message in first century Christianity. We may be forgiven, but we would actually be wrong. Because the environment in which Peter was writing had no place at all for ethical humility. Rather, it was founded upon self assertion and self aggrandisement. And therefore, we don't need to be too shrewd to recognize the fact. That not a lot has changed in 2,000 years, and that for us to address today the nature of humility is to find ourselves at odds with the environment in which we live. If you scan the average bookstore, you will be able to find very, very little, if anything at all, as to the nature and necessity of humility. If you are in the realm of education and especially educating younger children, you will search virtually in vain for anything that is being written in these days, suggesting that humility may be a foundation block in the building of character into children and in also creating in them the ability to learn effectively. Instead, we are surrounded by the kind of slogans that suggests the more we are into ourselves, the better we are. Uh, Being prepared to write books such as Humility and How I Attained It, or uh, being prepared to put on our door in the corridor in which we live, No, I am not conceited, and then underneath the remark, Although I have every right to be so. And the prevailing pattern in which we live today is simply, in culture, the aggregate Of our personal preoccupations. I just saw for a moment here up in my room an interview with Andre Previn, whom most of you are too young to even think about. But Previn was talking about some of the musicals that he had had a part in scoring in the earlier days. And amongst some of that genre of music, out of that come these words, which are almost um, expressive of the whole mood of the last quarter of this century where the individual says, I've lived and I've laughed and I've cried, I've had my fill and my share of losing, but now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think I did all that, and may I say, not in a shy way, oh no, oh no, not me, I did it my way. And you know, if you think about many of the influences that have been upon your life to this point— you may be prepared to admit that it is actually a wee while since you have given consideration to the possibility that humility may actually be the missing link in your life. George Verwer came to school in uh, London years ago now, in the early 70s. He was given a moment to express what he was going to speak on in a voluntary chapel service in the afternoon, and he stood up in the heart of London, and he said, This afternoon, I'm going to speak on why it is that 90% of Bible college students will amount to nothing for God. And in the afternoon, he spoke on the need for humility in our lives. When Paul writes concerning the last days in 2 Timothy 3, he says, But get a hold of this, mark this, in the last days men will be what? What is the very first thing he says? One word in Greek. They will be philautos. They will be lovers of themselves. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is antithetical to much which I am hearing and which I would imagine you are imbibing—namely, that humility is the very seedbed in which all the other grace and fruit of the Spirit grow. And we may be as talented as any, we may be as able as most around us, and yet we may be eventually ineffectual in the things of God, because of the absence of this very thing—humility. Now, why would I talk about it? Because I recognize its absence in my own life and ministry. I recognize the temptation to begin to believe that I am something when I am nothing. And since I recognize that I am fairly normal, if not Normal, I'm going to assume that there may be others who face the dilemma along with me. God has a way of sorting us out along the journey of life, and He will if He wants to use us in His purpose. A few months ago, now in the back garden in uh, someone else's home, I was standing talking to one of my children's parents. And one of their other children came underneath—I say underneath because she's a five-year-old girl—and as I was standing wearing shorts and a t-shirt, she came up and listened as I spoke to her father. Her father had a big beard and was a fairly hairy man. And in a moment, in a pause in the conversation, she looked up at me and she said one thing, "'Mr. Begg, do you shave your arms?' Do you shave your arms? Now, I'm not going to demonstrate for you this afternoon, but it was kind of humbling. The answer is, no, I don't shave my arms. I mean, this is the best I can do. But they are certainly not the arms of Esau. They are the arms uh, of—because Esau was an hairy man, and Jacob was an smooth man, all right? Now, all through my life, I I have looked at all you Americans and said, my, wouldn't it be great to be like, you know, Dr. Stoll, big and tall and and wear a 42 chest jacket. I mean, what <laughs> what? Why do I have to wear a 38, you know? Why is this me? When I came to the states for the first time in 1972, I was surrounded by all these archetypal American breeds, all budding Marine Corps characters, all surrounded by all these lovely girls and one in particular I was interested in. I, at that time, must have weighed probably absolutely soaking wet. I weighed 140 pounds maximum. <laughs> and um, at least seven of those pounds were my hair, which was, which was hanging right down on my shoulders. And we went to the north of Michigan together. And there, these, uh, these macho men got out. Uh, first, they started skiing in their bare feet on the water and uh, tried to teach me how to ski and just laughed hysterically in the boat as they know, nobody told me that if you don't make it, let go. And so I would be, I'd be plunging underneath and then coming back and disappearing again. And they died with laughter while I was underneath, and then they got poker-faced when I reappeared. But after they had humiliated me on that for a while, they introduced dirt bikes. Well, I had a bike... It had two pedals and a saddle and handlebars and, and, and uh, no gears, but I didn't have a motorbike. But I wasn't about to admit it, because after all, I had this girl, and, and uh, I, I was going to have to impress her. And uh, all these guys were certainly doing a fantastic job, and I was only here for two weeks, and they were here forever, and I was going away again. And so they gave me a bike, and they gave me a girl. And I got on the bike, and they got on the bikes, and they had a girl on the back, and they on the front, and off they went. They were popping wheelies in the sand and just going away. I went. <laughs> and eventually, after a long time, I let them get out, and I finally made it round a bend. As I made it around the bend, I fell off. The girl fell off. And there we lay in the, in, the, in the sand trying to resurrect the bike. I should tell you as well that I had dreadful hay fever. And as a result of the hay fever, my sinuses were so freaked out that my nose bled it just intermittently all the time. But I didn't know when it was bleeding because it, 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 I, I had too much else to worry about. And so I can't go on with the story. I'll tell you all later. But essentially what happened was that all the guys made it through the circuit with the girls on the back, and they all propped their bikes and waited for the return of the Scotsman. Imagine their dismay when he arrived with the girl riding on the front and him on the back. Okay? And the sand and the blood coagulating on my face. And there I was. And some evenings, when that girl tucks my children into bed, (laughs) I say to myself, so maybe you don't need a 42-inch chest, right? (laughs) I told you that story because I like it so much and I wanted to tell it. But also because all through my life, I have, I've constantly t- t- tried to overcome all kinds of things that I've never seemed to overcome—you know, I'm not that smart, and I'd like to be brighter. Uh, you know, I'm not that tall, and I'd like to be taller. I'm not that tough, and I'd like to be tougher. I'm not that old, and I think I'd like to be older. Well, After I went to my first church, there I was. I said, now nah, I'm a pastor, you know, and I have a study, and I have a few books, and I have a wife, and I have, and I have a child coming. I said, maybe I'll get some respect around here. And I go to the door, and there's a man standing at the door, and he has a big thing, and he's selling uh, uh, window units. And I open the door, and I say, yes. And he said, Sonny, is your mother home? (laughs) So God has a purpose to make sure that we don't get an overinflated notion of ourselves. And the whole matter of humility is something really crucial. Now, I am illustrating it from a humorous perspective, but what I want to do in the time that I have is to just give you five things that come out of this concerning humility. I move through them very quickly. Of course, you'll be delighted about that. Number one, humility is revealed not in a vacuum but in relationships— I suppose if any of us could go and live the rest of our lives in a wardrobe, we could convince ourselves that we were actually humble people. But the minute that we walk out into the community and thoroughfare of life, we discover the incipient, rising attitude of pride which confronts us like an ugly monster more times than we're prepared to acknowledge and certainly to admit. Peter has urged upon those who are in leadership of the church to lead firmly and yet with humility. And then he goes on to say that he wants young men in the same way to be submissive to those who are older. Now, clearly, he's not just suggesting that young men would submit to the elders of the church. He's already made that clear. But beyond that, what he's recognizing is the necessity of young people respecting their elders. It's a kind of a, a lost notion, the idea of standing up when an older person is there. Or I, when I went to school, uh, as soon as the schoolteacher walked in the classroom, the whole class stood as a mark of respect. If the principal came, they all stood. Today, that's regarded as just kind of silly or bogus. But in actual fact, it was teaching the very nature of respect for our elders. Because the fact is that young men and young women— are unhappily prone to self-assertion. We're at that point in our lives, or you are at that point in your life where the whole world opens before you, and again, you're imbibing all this stuff which tells you, you better be the person you want to be, you better be all that you can be. And that is true, provided it is earthed in an understanding of biblical humility. It wasn't their exclusive problem as young people, And that's why he goes on to say, I want all of you to clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. In other words, humility recognizes first on the vertical axis that I live under God, and we'll say something about that in a moment. And when I begin to understand that, then it transforms the way I live with other people. Pride and arrogance and self-assertion and self-focus we recognize as ugly in others. Why is it that we manage to countenance it so easily in ourselves? But wait, wait a minute. This may be the wrong message for the wrong group. Just put up your hand this morning if you are a humble person, would you? Yeah, there's always one clown. He's up on the back row, second back row. Thank you. One guy says he's humble, presumably quite proud of it, but the rest of you, you don't put your hands up. (laughs) Okay, well, then, all right, so we'll we'll keep going, right? Humility, Humility is revealed in relationships. Secondly, humility is primarily an attitude of mind, an attitude of mind both in verse 5 and in verse 6, Peter makes it clear that humility is revealed in our attitudes and it's revealed in our actions. There is nowhere that we're exhorted to feel humble. We're not even actually encouraged to pray about being humble, but rather we are to adopt an attitude of humility, to adopt an attitude of lowliness. Romans 12, in that section that follows 1 and 2, which we all know so well, uh, Paul goes on to say, don't— think of yourselves more highly than you ought. J.B. Phillips paraphrases it, don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance, but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities. A sane estimate of your capabilities— Not over exaggerated notions of who I am or what I am or what I'm going to be or why everybody would like to listen to me talk or why everyone would like to hear me sing or why they would like to listen to my music or why they would like to hear the latest book that I read. Don't do that. Don't do that. Now you notice that it is immediately a challenge to the will. And it is in the realm of my attitude that I first have to harness these issues. That's why the Bible has so much to say about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. First, by the Spirit of God, we learn to think differently—attitude—and then, with his enabling, we learn to live differently—action. The word which is used here is an unusual word, and it's a descriptive word. It's the word which was used of a slave who, in serving others, would tie on an apron. And when he tied on that apron, in the same way as if you've ever worked as a waiter in a restaurant, when you go in there at four o'clock in the afternoon, if it's an evening shift, and you put on that thing which you you were supposed to take home and have your mother wash from the night before, and it has all that junk on it, no matter how good you were feeling before you went in there, as soon as you string that baby around your waist, you know, hey, here I am. The next six hours, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to wait on tables. And the apron itself— is symbolic of the task. That is the exact word that is used here. In the same way, he says, as a slave would put on an apron, make sure, he says, that you put on humility in the exact same way as you would do that. When we fail to put on humility in arising on a morning, friendships are marred, families are broken, and fellowships are destroyed. What is the real problem between brothers and sisters, even when they're tiny? In the majority of cases, this is a problem of pride. Why does one think that the other two ought to shut up all the time while he speaks? Because he thinks what he has to say is more important than the other two. Why does she feel that she can interrupt and finish all the sentences of her little sister because she thinks that she's brighter than her little sister, and her little sister really can't get on in the world without her. Now you say, Well, where'd you get that from? Well, I just left it all behind in my house. And also, I was that big brother to my two younger sisters. Think about how friendships break down here at Moody Bible Institute, and ask yourself if you've lost a friend in the last semester. Ask yourself this question. If humility had been more present, could the friendship have been restored or retained? Think about what has happened in the disintegration of church families and ask the question, if humility had been sown in these circumstances, would it be as it is today? An attitude of humility thinks about serving, not being served. Thinks about giving first, not taking about responding, not commanding, about fitting into the arrangements of others, not demanding that they fit into ours. Thirdly, humility and the discovery of God's grace go hand in hand. Now, you'll notice the corollary of this truth is stated first in a quote from Proverbs 3. You know that as well as I do, because it's a footnote at the bottom of your Bible. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? When you hear these uh, preachers preach and, and they go, as it says, as he quotes here from Proverbs 3, and you say, my, I wish I knew my Bible like that. Actually, all you need to know is your footnotes like that, because most of the time it's written right there at the bottom. So don't let any of us impress you in any way by doing what you yourselves can do. It says Proverbs three thirty-four. How do I know that? It's written down at the bottom page of my Bible, and I looked it up to check that it was there. All you need to do to study the Bible is you've got to understand the English language and stay sitting on your bottom for long enough to Uh, to learn a little bit, and then you can go from there. So, he quotes Proverbs 3, and he says, "'God opposes proud people. Therefore, there's no future if you're proud and arrogant. He sets himself against the haughty. He will not, therefore, pander to our intellectual arrogance, but he will cater to our intellectual integrity.'" And the humility which is described here, whereby God gives grace to the humble, is not simply a winsome graciousness, it's not simply a deferential approach. So many people fall into the trap of thinking that humble people are quiet people. So, if we happen to be not as quiet as we would like, we say, oh, if only I could become a quiet person, then I could become a humble person. Now, there may be truth in that because some of our noisiness may be due to arrogance, in which case there is something of truth in that. But don't fall into the trap of believing that because God made you boisterous and made you extrovert, that somehow or another you're going to need a personality change in order to become a humble person. You're just going to have to learn how it is to be humble as a boisterous extrovert. And those people who think that simply by standing in a corner and wearing um, funny shaped glasses uh, bestows upon them the blessings of biblical humility, that's just not true, is it? Because I can sit and be silent and very, very proud, I can be noisy and fairly humble. So don't let us fall into the trap of thinking that humility is a sort of personality deal, but rather, humility expresses itself in repentance, in short accounts with sin, in self-distrust, and in open hands to God. Humility wakes up in the morning and says, "'Thank you, Lord Jesus, for a good night's sleep.'" because we discovered in the Bible that he gives his beloved sleep. So there's no reason for us to go out and say, you know, I have no problem with sleep. As if somehow or another, that was something you bestowed upon yourself. The fact of the matter is, it is the Lord who gives you sleep, and it is the Lord who wakes you up. If you happen to be tall enough to dunk a basketball, congratulations. Congratulations. We have to look up to you, and that's all right. But you didn't make yourself that height. Even if you did hang from bars when you were in a pre-adolescent growth sport, you did not make yourself that height. And when we think of our Christian experience, it is here more than at any other place that we ought to be gripped by humility. To be able to sing this hymn this morning, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine is that something that we want to congratulate ourselves upon? That we were smart enough to tune into God? No, because we've reckoned it through, and we realize that God in His grace and in His mercy has laid hold upon our lives. Therefore, it is a wonderful thing, in the true sense of wonder, to be able to sing the song. You need to go away and read 1 Corinthians, the end of the first chapter, where Paul says, think about it when you were called, brethren. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were, were noble birth. But God chose what was foolish in the world's sight in order to magnify his power. Why? Because humility and the discovery of God's grace go hand in hand. Do you ever wonder why it is that, that the, the most unlikely people did the most unbelievable things for God? I mean— why would, a, why would a little guy in a shoe shop stacking size eights and size seven and a halves become Dwight L. Moody, the world-famous evangelist? With generations following in his train. What, how do you explain that? Now, sociologists will have their attempt, and church historians will mention various trends and things, but somewhere or another, the truth of the matter has got to play into the statement, which presumably is not apocryphal, that Moody heard the person say from the pulpit, The world has yet to see what God can do with a life wholly given unto him. And Moody said, with God's help, I'll be that man. I may only be a shoe boy, but I can sure give my life unreservedly to God. I may not have much to offer. I may not have tremendous talents. I may not have amazing abilities. And the fact of the matter is that when you trace the history of of biblical record, when you look at the kings in the Old Testament, there were phenomenal kings—big guys, tough guys, great-start guys And they amounted to nothing for God, and people were brought from obscurity to positions of great usefulness. Why? Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the experience of God's grace in its fullness is the prerogative of those who are prepared to bow down before Almighty God. Well, then— this feeds into so much, you know, because it lets us realize that the key to who we are and what we are is determined by someone other than ourselves. And the fourth and penultimate thing is that humility means to live under God's mighty hand. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. That's what Moses had to do. Hey, Moses! Who, me? Yeah, you. First of all, take your shoes off, then we'll talk. I might have to take my shoes off, you know. Hey, I've been out here 40 years. Nobody told me—take your shoes off, Moses. For the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Let's get things in perspective. Now, Moses, this is the deal. You are going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to say to him, hey, let my people go. And you remember how it goes from there. God reaches in to the obscurity of Moses' circumstance, a guy who had already tried to take matters into his own hands— and done so to a drastic end. And now, after these forty years, God comes and says, Now we're going to do it under my mighty hand. The same thing that happened to Nehemiah when he went back to rebuild the wall. Humility is the realistic recognition that God's grace is the key to understanding who we are and what we are and who we're not and what we're not, and realizing that it is profitless to spend the rest of our lives trying to reverse the decision. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who made you the way you are? Who made you different from somebody else? Who put your nose on your face that way? God. Who determined where you'd be born? God. What do you have this morning as you sit in Moody Bible Institute that you did not receive? Zero. Then says Paul, if you, did not, if you received it, why would you glory as if you came up with it yourself? I meet so many, many people who are tyrannized by always looking around, young people especially. Oh, and, and we've got it now in the, in the Gatorade commercial. They've finally given it to us perfectly. I want to be like Mike. If I could only be Mike— do you know how many of you are sitting here going, "If only I could be somebody else. If only I could be. If only I could be." Do you not realize that God configured you exactly as you are because He wants you to be the person you are? Do you remember the song we used to sing at Sunday school? When if I were a butterfly, I thank you, Lord, for giving me wings. This is a '60s song, you know. And uh, uh, <laughs> and if, and, if, and if I were a robin in the tree, I thank you, Lord, that I could sing. And then my favorite one because you got to do the actions in the Sunday school that I was in. and 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 you could whack around and, and hit people, which try and liven up the Sunday school because the teacher was so lousy. But anyway, and if I was, and if I was a fuzzy wuzzy bear, I thank you, Lord, for my fuzzy wuzzy hair. Remember that? And then you could rubble up everybody's hair. And all the girls are going, oh, don't do that, don't do that. <laughs> you got a fuzzy wuzzy hair. And then how did it finish? But I just thank you, Father, for making me me. Why? because I'm so special? No, because you gave me a heart, and you gave me a smile, and you gave me Jesus, and you made me your child. Now we've got perspective. So, I just thank you, Father, for making me me. And the final point is humility can anticipate exaltation. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that in due season he may exalt you. This is not motivation for being humble. This is explanation about what happens when you are humble. It's not be humble so you can be a big guy. It is be humble because the only big guys that God ever uses in his economy are humble people. I am the high and holy one. I live in the high and holy place, says the Lord, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit." This is not easy stuff, but I must say I'm proud to have managed to finish as close to quarter two as I have. (laughs) Let's pray together. Oh, God, our Father, we pray you'll look upon us in your mercy and in your grace. May these days be days of soul-searching. Save us from the tyranny of self-recrimination that is not from you. May the hours of this day bear fruit From humility in each life for Jesus' sake. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages Alistair Begg presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week 1991. Alistair Begg is the senior pastor of Cleveland's Parkside Church. He's an author, conference speaker, and host of the daily Truth for Life radio program. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.